Every week as I drive up here uh, from Rome on Sunday mornings uh, on the way to church, I pray the same prayer every week, and that is that the gospel may be proclaimed in every aspect of the service from start to finish. And that is what has been done so far as we worship together through song and through giving, and I pray uh, that as we continue through the proclamation of the word, uh, that that will happen. So join me in prayer this morning, and then we'll get started. Dear God, I thank you so much for the privilege to uh, bring your word to this church this morning. It is no small thing, and we acknowledge that, God. And I pray that as, as we look into your word this morning and as I speak, God, that it would be your words and not mine. And that through what is said this morning, the Holy Spirit will work in the lives of your church. In your name we pray. Amen. As I said, I'm grateful for the privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, if you were here last week, you know uh, that we have started a new series, uh, a, a new sermon series in our church, and I'm honored to be uh, able to give you the second, uh, the second sermon in this series called Be the Church. We're studying uh, in the book of Acts and what it means to be the church based on uh, what we read in Acts. And last week we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 8. And, and, and we, we saw the truth that for us to be the church, we have to be about the gospel. We have to be centered around the word. And then this week, as we continue in chapter 8, I believe that, that what we need to learn this morning is that for us to be the church that God has called us to be, we have to be spirit-led. We have to be spirit-led. This is important. This is foundational to who we are as a church. Let me read you a couple passages of scripture before we get into Acts chapter 8 that I hope will prepare us and kind of get us ready for what we are going to be studying this morning. The first is in John chapter 16, John chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I, go, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, he, he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, and he is saying, I'm about to leave, but this is of your benefit, because when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come, and he will work in agreement with me and with the Father, and he will be a guide to you. So that's what Jesus says to the disciples in John chapter 16. And then, as we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, the Great Commission, Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven, and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus is giving his last command before he ascends back into heaven. And he says that you're to go and to do this, but before you do it, the Holy Spirit must come so that he will empower you to be able to do this task that I have called you to. It is clear in these two passages that we just read that the Holy Spirit is essential to the work that God has called us to do. 
And with that knowledge, stand with me as we read out of Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him saying, Isaiah the prophet, and, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, to, to, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. The passages that we read in John and in Acts chapter 1, and then this passage that we will be studying this morning make it clear that the guidance of the Spirit is foundational to the mission of the church. The guidance of the Spirit is foundational to the church's mission. Without it, it is impossible to do what God has called us to do. You can have a seat this morning. So if you remember from last week, we were in the first part of Acts chapter 8, and Philip has just experienced great success in ministry. He has gone to the city of Samaria, and he has proclaimed the gospel, and the city has been saved. The city has uh, heard the gospel, and they have acknowledged that Jesus is the Savior. And now, after this, you and I, if we were in that position, we might be wondering, you know, what's next? Are we going to a bigger city? Are we going, where are we going? But through the Holy Spirit, God calls Philip to go to this road in between Jerusalem and Gaza, and he says, this is a desert place. Essentially, God is calling Philip to go to the middle of the desert, and he doesn't tell him why he's going. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you're going to run into this guy. He doesn't say, you're going to proclaim the gospel. He just says, go. And Philip, out of obedience, he goes. He does what God has called him to do. Anytime I have the uh, opportunity to preach, um, I will normally call or text my grandfather who pastored for a long time and, you know, tell him the text that I'm preaching and, and those kinds of things. And I, uh, I texted my grandfather this week and I said, you know, I'm preaching this week on uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And he said, he said, Philip was in the middle of a great revival. But even in an interruption, he was obedient to God's calling to go. And so out of Philip's obedience, I believe we can learn a few things that, that we can apply to, to us as a church this morning. The first thing that we see from Philip is that we must prepare for when the Spirit calls. We must prepare for when the Spirit calls. Philip had committed his life to preparing and being ready 
and to the work of the Spirit, to the work of the church. As we prepare for when the Spirit calls, we must have a willingness to serve. We must have a willingness to serve. Philip's ministry did not begin when he began preaching in Samaria. Philip's ministry did not begin with him preaching the word to thousands and thousands of people and them receiving the gospel. Instead, his, his ministry began in a place that you and I might think is pretty, pretty menial. In Acts chapter 6, we see that there has arisen kind of an issue. And uh, in, in the work of the church and as the, the church is taking care of people, there have been a certain group that has been left out of the daily food distribution, right? We know that the early church, uh, they distributed food and they took care of widows and orphans. But then a group of people come to, to the apostles and they say, listen, there's this group of widows that have been left out from the daily food distribution. We, we got to do something about this. And so the apostles, what they do is they appoint seven people to serve. They appoint a group of seven people who have a good reputation, a group of seven men that have good reputation, that are full of the spirit to, to do this service, to, to pass out food and to take care of these widows. And Philip is among this seven. Philip does not begin his ministry by preaching to hundreds and thousands of people. He begins his ministry by just serving food. He was not in a glamorous ministry position, yet he was humble enough to do this tedious task because he knew it was glorifying God and benefiting the recipients of the ministry. He knew that by doing this task, by by passing out food, even something that you and I might think is not that important, it was benefiting the work of the church because these people were having needs met and the apostles were able to continue their teaching. I think one of the most important things we can learn from Philip here is that our desire for the gospel to be known should be greater than our desire for ourselves to be known. You and I should long for the gospel to be known among the nations and not our, our, our own names. So Philip has cultivated this willingness to serve. He has shown this willingness to serve in his preparation. The second thing that, that I think we need to do in our preparation is we must cultivate a heart for people. We must cultivate a heart for people. I've heard uh, many people say, many of my mentors say that Anybody can stand up in front of a group, in front of a church, and preach. But the true mark of a pastor is being able to show care to an individual person, to get to know the heart of an individual person. And I, and I believe this was cultivated in Philip as he is serving the widows, as he is serving the orphans, as he is serving the poor. He is cultivating a love for people, for the individual person, for the one who is down and out, for the one who is marginalized. So that when he was called to go into the desert and encounter this one eunuch, he does not despise the individual because he's just preached to the masses. He doesn't overlook the heart of the individual for these, for these great cities. And this is not something that Philip does on his own. He is following the example of Christ. Christ, the ultimate servant, the ultimate one who displayed humility in serving the individual. 
in meeting the needs of the individual and loving the person. As Philip follows the example of Christ in that, you and I are called to do that as well. Lastly, as we prepare for when the Spirit calls, we have to be biblically knowledgeable. We have to know what is in the Word. And I'm not saying this morning that everyone has to be a biblical scholar, that everyone needs a seminary degree, that everybody needs to be able to read Greek and Hebrew and to really get into the nuances. Those things are helpful. But we all must have a working knowledge of the scriptures in order to faithfully minister to those we're called to minister to. We must be able to accurately proclaim the scriptures and and work through the narrative of scripture and see what God is doing and interpret these passages of scripture so that when someone asks, what does this mean, we can tell them. Because Philip has prepared, because he knows the scripture, when the eunuch asks, what does this mean? Who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? He can read this passage that the eunuch is reading, Isaiah 53, and say, this is Jesus. This is pointing to Jesus. The prophet Isaiah in this passage has given us a picture of what Jesus looks like as he serves you and I by dying on the cross. And through his knowledge of the scriptures, Isaiah is then able to start with Isaiah 53 and work through the whole scriptures to lead the eunuch to Christ. And he's not reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Philip did not have written copies of the gospels like you have. What Philip had was a knowledge of the Old Testament. He had a knowledge of the Old Testament, of these passages that you and I might often overlook. Or we might say, I don't really understand this. I don't get the Old Testament. But Philip had a knowledge of the Old Testament and knew that these scriptures can lead someone to Christ because they create an expectation of what it means for the Messiah to come. And then he is able to say, Jesus was that Messiah. He was the one who bore the sins of the people so that we might be restored into a relationship with God. So we must prepare for when the Spirit calls. And then just as Philip did, when the Spirit calls, we must be obedient. In order to say that we are a Spirit-led church, we must be obedient when the Spirit calls. As I said a few moments ago, it is a Philip could have seen it as pretty weird. He's just preached to, to this, this city of Samaria, and the gospel has been, been proclaimed there. And now he's being called to go to the middle of the desert. But he is faithful, and he is obedient. And that is because obedience is a lifelong commitment and not a momentary decision. Obedience is a lifelong commitment and not an in-the-moment decision. I'm sure you know what it's like, right? We, we face an in-the-moment decision, and then we're, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how to respond. We're, we're kind of locked up. But if we have ahead of time decided that we are going to decide what we're going to do, that, um, that decision becomes much, much easier. Philip's lifestyle of obedience and willingness began early on, right? When, when the seven were called to serve in Acts chapter 6, right, 
it says that they, they called six, uh, seven men who had good reputations and were full of the Spirit. Philip's obedience did not begin when he was called to serve. It began early, early on. And he created this lifelong commitment to obedience so that when the Spirit called him to go to the desert, it was easy for him to say yes. You know, if you, if you read any book about uh, relationships or dating or marriage or whatever, uh, they'll tell you one thing, that trust is built over time, right? That trust is, a, uh, is built over time and it's um, about, you know, showing obedience and showing commitment and, and all these things. And then over time, trust is built. Past faithfulness equals, uh, equals future trust. So when Philip has been obedient in the past and he has placed his trust in God and in the leading of the Spirit in the past and God has proved himself faithful, that makes it easier for Philip to trust in the future because past faithfulness equals future trust. So obedience is a lifelong commitment, but it also obedience allows us to be a part of what God is doing. Obedience allows us to be a part of God's mission. Now don't be mistaken, don't hear me wrong God did not need Philip. God did not need Philip, and God does not need me. God does not need me. He doesn't need any of us, but he allows us to come alongside him in the work of the gospel. He, he allows us to come alongside him, and he calls us, and then it's up to us whether or not we're going to be obedient. But God blesses us by using our obedience to introduce people to a relationship with him. Like Philip, if we are obedient, we get the blessing of seeing people come to Jesus. God does not need us. He is sovereign, and we are broken, shallow creatures. But if you and I practice obedience when the Spirit calls, we get the great blessing of seeing God work. And there's no greater blessing than that. I'll tell you this morning, for First Baptist Church of K-Spring to do the ministry that God has called us to do, we need a church full of Phillips. Ordinary people who are willing to serve and are completely obedient and sold out to the mission of the gospel. Obedience is a lifelong commitment. It allows us to be a part of what God is doing. And obedience is a testimony that we believe in the mission. Obedience is a testimony that we truly believe what we say. James, in, in chapter 2 of, of his book, shows us this, right? He says, faith without works is dead. He's not saying that works are what save us. We know that we, we can't be saved by works. We know that only the grace of God will justify us through the working of Jesus on the cross. But what he is saying is, if we truly have faith, if we truly have been changed, then there should be fruit that goes with that. That people should be able to see that there has been a change in you and that we will do good works out of what God has called us to do. People can see that we have been truly changed by our obedience. And through that, that is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his ability to change and restore hearts.
our third point this morning is that we must trust in the one who calls. We must trust in the one who calls. God's provision is all over this passage. It is all over this passage. The first thing is God graciously provides the encounter. God sovereignly moves Philip to the exact place he needs to be to witness to the eunuch. Right? This is no small thing. When we, when we just read this passage, sometimes we miss it. I miss it. I missed it for years. And it wasn't until this week when I was really diving in where it hit me. Wow. The sovereignty of God is on full display in this passage. So for, for the eunuch, right, for this Ethiopian eunuch, he is traveling uh, to Jerusalem from Ethiopia. One way, one way that is a five-month journey. A five-month journey one way. And I feel like I have a long drive out here in the mornings. <laughs> the eunuch has is in the middle of a journey that is a total of 10 months, a round trip, 10-month trip. And somehow, someway, Philip and the eunuch meet at exactly the right place at exactly the right time in the middle of a journey that takes almost a year. That is not coincidence. That is not chance. That is not luck. That is God sovereignly providing an encounter for a sinner to know Jesus. So God moves Philip in the exact right place where he needs to be to meet the eunuch. And then God sovereignly provides a source of water for the eunuch to be baptized, right? Philip and the eunuch begin to discuss as they're riding in, in the eunuch's chariot. And then right as Philip ends his gospel presentation. And I, I imagine the last thing that Philip said was, and then Jesus told us, go and make disciples of all nations and then baptize them. And then the eunuch says, well, there's water right there. Why can't I be baptized? God is gracious in giving us opportunities to share the gospel and we can't waste them when he gives them to us. When, when we think about it in this way that God has worked and moved and is sovereign over those encounters, then they don't become chance meetings. They become gospel opportunities. So God graciously provides the encounter, and then God graciously provides the word. It is significant that, you, that the eunuch is reading this passage out of Isaiah, right? It is, it is, this is another thing. It's not a, circum, it's not a coincidence, it is significant that he is reading this passage. Uh, I mentioned it briefly a moment ago, but this passage out of Isaiah is one of the four servant songs in Isaiah, right? And these are four passages in the book of Isaiah um, that help point us and create an expectation of the coming Messiah. Now, you and I know that Messiah is Jesus, but the eunuch doesn't know that, right? And so, so the eunuch, he asks, he asked Philip, he says, who is, who's the prophet talking about? Who is this servant that's going to suffer? Who is this servant that's going to be humiliated? Is it himself or is it someone else? What an amazing opportunity for Philip to share the gospel, right? What a, what a perfect passage. 
not only is Isaiah 53 significant, but there are other passages in Isaiah that give us a really interesting perspective on this passage of Philip and the eunuch. In Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to turn there real fast. You, you don't have to go there with me. But in Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 to you. In that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Do these nations sound familiar to you? Two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, right? Jared wrapped up our, uh, our series in Genesis. And in that last sermon, we looked at these nations in Genesis chapter 10, and we look at the curse of Ham and, and the nations that flowed out of that and how these nations are kind of Israel's most wanted list. They were the cause of great trouble to God's people. And Isaiah prophesies here that these same nations, the same nations that we saw that are going to be of trouble to Israel, will one day be saved. The people from these nations will come to know Jesus. And on that list... We have the nation of Cush, which is the Old Testament name for Ethiopia. The eunuch is reading a passage of scripture that predicts that people from his nation will be saved. And he becomes the first Ethiopian that we know of that, that comes to know Jesus. Another passage that gives us uh, an interesting perspective from Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 56. Just a few short chapters uh, following Isaiah 53 that the eunuch is reading here. And in Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 4, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is good news for the eunuch. This is eternally good news for the eunuch. I'm not going to go into to great detail here, but because of the nature of the eunuch, he was not able to fully participate in worship. With, with the Jews, right? Because the eunuch has an Isaiah scroll um, and he seems to have a working knowledge, a little bit of a knowledge of the scripture, and because he is traveling from Jerusalem, we can see that he was probably a Gentile who was a God-fearer, meaning that he, he had a knowledge of who God was, and he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, but because he was a eunuch, he was not able to enter the temple. He was not able to worship with the Jews, But what Isaiah is saying here is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, no man will be disfellowshipped from the body if you proclaim your faith in Jesus. No man will be withheld from my hand. And he says, to the eunuchs who place their faith in me, I will give them a new name. I will give them a name that is better than sons and daughters and they shall not be cut off. Don't you see how that is God's provision? 
The eunuch is reading this passage of scripture that gives Philip a prime opportunity to say, thousands of years ago, through the prophet Isaiah, God prophesied that people like you, that you would be saved. You're an Ethiopian and you're a eunuch. And now you shall have a name that will never be cut off. And that brings us to our, our last uh, sub-point today. God graciously provides the salvation. Though the obedience of Philip helped lead the eunuch to Jesus, it is God who saves. It is God who saves. It is not anything that, that Philip did. It, is not, it had nothing to do with Philip except for his obedience. And that God was able to use his obedience to, to, to proclaim the gospel to this eunuch. But it is God who saves. But Philip gives us the prime example of the fact that though it is God who is sovereign over salvation, we have a responsibility to do what he has commanded of us in the Great Commission. We have a responsibility to go and tell, to make disciples, to baptize them. God has called us to be obedient to the mission of his church, to be obedient to the Great Commission. And now we have to go. We have to do what he has commanded us to do. As I close this morning, as we wrap up, I can't help but think of what the conversation between Philip and the eunuch was like in the chariot as they're riding along. The eunuch asks, he says, who, who, who is the prophet talking about? What's going on here? And the scripture says that Philip began with, began with this scripture, began with Isaiah 3, and then told him about Jesus. And I believe it went a little something like this. I think, I think Philip said, the prophet's not writing about himself. He's writing about one who is to come. He's writing about the one that we have waited for for a long time. You see, eunuch, God created a perfect world. He created man to be in relationship with him. But then man in, in man's rebellion sinned. And they were not obedient to what God had commanded them. The one command God gave them, they weren't obedient to. And so because of that, man and God were separated and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And we see sin perpetuate and perpetuate until finally there's a flood. And God has wiped the earth clean and has a, made, created a new beginning with Noah and his family. But it doesn't get better. Sin continues until finally God scatters the people of the earth and, and, and causes them to speak different languages. But there is a promise God makes a promise to Abraham saying that the nations will be great through what I'm going to do through you and your family. And he promises Abraham that he will be the seed of a nation of God's people. And as this nation is birthed, uh, they're moved into slavery in Egypt. And then God sovereignly gets them out of Egypt and there's an exodus and they leave. They leave Egypt, but the problems don't stop there. You see, then, then the people, as they're in their exodus, as they're working towards the promised land, they're given a law, and the law does nothing but show their inability because they cannot do it. 
Finally, once they get settled into the promised land, but they still, they continue their pattern of sin. They continue their pattern of walking away from God. Finally, it got to a point where they, they begged for an earthly king because they did not want to listen to their heavenly king. And so they were, they were given a king, but the kings only let them down. And prophets like Isaiah came and they warned about the judgment that was to come. And then God's people is taken into captivity by godless enemies. But God in his grace preserves a remnant that will return to the holy city. And then 400 years of silence. And then, as prophesied in Isaiah and in the whole Old Testament, the virgin gives birth to the Messiah. He was just like us. He was human just like you and I are, but he knew no sin. He was sinless. He was fully God and fully man, and yet he died on the cross in our place to exchange our sin for his righteousness. He took our sin upon himself and applied his righteousness to us. And then three days later, he rose again, defeating sin and death. And then he gave us a final command, go and tell and be baptized. And then the eunuch says, well, let's do it right here then. We got to follow the example of Philip to be who God has called us to be.